Welcome to the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Tsveta Petrova, a lecturer in the Political Science Department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, these parties have not only come to power, but also remained in office in consecutive elections. So in the interviews for this series, we interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern Europe. The series is hosted by the European Institute of Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer in interview alone. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Ben Stanley. He is an associate professor at the Center for the Study of Europe and the University of Social Sciences and Humanities in Orso. And he's also a visiting fellow at the University of Sussex. He researches political parties, voting behavior, democratization and populism in Central and Eastern Europe. He has published numerous articles on these topics, including in Perspectives on Politics, Party Politics, Journal of Contemporary European Research, Democratization, and Eastern European Politics and Societies, to mention a few. Welcome, Professor Stanley. Thank you for having me. Professor Stanley, you've written a lot about populism and democracy in Poland. But before we discuss the specifics, let's start with your definition of populism. Populism has been defined as a strategy of direct mobilization or alternatively as a rhetorical strategy or an ideology. Well, my definition of populism is very simple and very straightforward. I just see it as a thin ideology, um, which essentially pits a, um, an, the people against the elite and kind of presupposes that there is an antagonistic relationship between them and that this is essentially what politics is at its core, that it's about this clash between the, the, the people and the elite. So in that sense, populism itself um, doesn't tell us much about the stuff of policy. It doesn't give us any sort of real direction as to what to do, what kind of policies to espouse and what kinds of um, narratives to follow. It simply sets up this basic antagonism between the people and the elite. And much of what follows is then contextually determined. Who are the populists? Well, in, in Poland, currently, we have um, the Law and Justice Party, which is the party in power at present. That populist element has always been part of its appeal. It's just something that is, it's tended to accentuate to a greater or lesser extent. We also have examples of sort of more minor populist parties, such as the Cookies 15 movement, which has been in parliament and has had a degree of influence over the last uh, few years, but that influence is now um, pretty much entirely vanished. It's a, a spent force. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the law and justice movement and the party as a populist force. And what are some of the more populist periods in that party's development? Well, it's, it's often forgotten that law and justice and the current, uh, the main part of the current opposition coalition, the uh, Civic Platform Party. In 2005, these parties were expected to form a coalition. And before 2005, Law and justice was seen as a, a somewhat unorthodox, but by no means particularly populist political party. So it was set up in uh, to contest the 2001 elections. And 
at the time, its emphasis was very much um, on anti-corruption and um, decommunization. Its insistence was that decommunization had not been carried out properly, that as a result, the political elite were dominated by either either those who had been in positions of power before 1989 or those who had cooperated with them um, and had formed a kind of post-communist liberal compact to to carve up power between themselves. Mm-hmm. So law and justice's aim was to um, to fight back against that. And mm-hmm. in that sense, it um, the germ of its populist critique was already present in in its fi- in its founding, even if it didn't articulate that um, particularly strongly at the beginning, because it argued that um, the political elite was irretrievably compromised by the the nature the mode of transition, and that the 1997 constitution mm-hmm. was essentially a a sort of a false refounding of the Polish Republic. It uh, was a moment at which the the liberal elite and the post-communist elite were able to kind of entrench their position of advantage. And from that point, their populist discourse began to develop. During the 2001-2005 period, it really focused on the anti-corruption issue in particular, because we had um, a a government at the time that was involved in a number of um, corruption crises, which raised the profile of of law and justice and of its its critique of those in power. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. at the 2005 election, this sort of brought about a situation in which both law and justice and civic platform looked as if they were going to be in a position to create a kind of... um, more or less centre-right, anti-corruption, anti-post-communist coalition that was going to uh, to engage in a significant reorientation of, of, of Polish politics. Um, that all founded after the two sides essentially started, um, became rivals. And so law and justice faced a choice. They were, they were the largest party after the 2005 election, and they thought, well, either we give up our only shot at power or we try to do something in this situation and so they turned towards populist parties they looked to uh, self-defense on the one hand so this party that elaborated this very um uh, anti um anti-free market critique of transition on the one hand and the league of polish families which was more concerned with cultural issues and both of those parties had a very strong populist element to their appeal. No one had really thought of forming a coalition with these parties before. They were seen as um, as, as pariahs. Mm-hmm. But when Law and Justice realised that it was only by collaborating with those parties that it would be able to form a, uh, to form a majority and, and try to govern, it turned towards, it sort of embraced populism at that point and, and started to develop its populist appeal more thoroughly. That government proved short-lived it was riven with all sorts of rivalries and um and internal intrigues mm-hmm. but the result mm-hmm. of that was that by 2007 law and justice had absorbed the populist discourse of those parties mm-hmm. and had to a certain extent absorbed some of their more radical um uh, policies relating to the economy and to the um and to cultural matters mm-hmm. so it had turned towards towards the left on the economy, towards the right um, in sociocultural issues, at the same time as embracing a degree of populism that it had previously not really articulated. The 
extent to which it's used populism in its appeals has tended to to ebb and flow. Certainly after the um, the Smolensk disaster in 2010, we saw a an uptick in the party's populism as it strove to sort of uh, to make use of that crisis as a way of discrediting the existing elite. But it has tended to um, uh, to have a more instrumental approach to to populism than than some political uh, than some populist parties do. It will move towards the uh, a more um, significant articulation of populism at times, only to return to a more uh, a more moderate form of political discourse when it realizes that it's losing people in the center. Thank you. Um, so if I could sum up, um, you see law and justice as from the very beginning, um, having an, an anti-establishment and a moralist um, ideology, which only grows over time and is especially well articulated after their first tenure in uh, office in the mid 2000s. Um, but nonetheless, it's uh, a populist approach that is fairly instrumental or pragmatic, as in they can tone it down or dial it up, depending on the support and the demand from voters. Again, focusing on Poland, what do you see as contributing to the emergence and the rise of this populist movement in the country? I think um, in the case of law and justice, what they have been able to to exploit is, uh, on the one hand, a degree of um, uh, what scholars have called fatigue and anxiety at transition, which um, was not um, necessarily particularly politically influential in the first decade of transition, but certainly started to become um, more prominent and a, a clearer aspect of um, of general political discourse towards the end of the first decade. So the, mm-hmm. the, the populist parties in 2001, which broke into parliament at that time, I mean, their emergence as political par- powers was, a, as, as, even as parties of opposition, was a significant shock to the political elite. In, in the 1990s, we'd had uh, rotating post-communist and, po- and post-solidarity governments. And there was a tendency among observers and among um, political parties alike to think, well, this is, this is Poland's political cleavage now. And politics is going to rotate between those who inherited the, commun- the mantle from the communists and those who represent the communist era opposition tendency. And so that, that was going to be a, a fairly straightforward rotation. In 2001, um, self-defense and the League of Polish Families broke into Parliament by articulating very different appeals. And what self-defense was saying was that economic transition has had a ruinous effect on people who have um, who were not in a good position to take advantage of the opportunities of transition. So they started to develop that sort of losers of transition discourse, which we still see as quite relevant um, uh, to the, to this day. Mm-hmm. And the League of Polish Families at the same time said that um, transition has brought about cultural and social change of an undesirable kind. It's led to people embracing Western consumerism. It's led to um, a decline in, um, in people's uh, religious observation, in church attendance, in generally in the, uh, the role of, um, of Catholic values in Polish society. And but this is the fault of poor decisions that were made at the beginning of the, um, the transition period. We failed to 
sort of entrench a vision of a specifically Polish um, Polish stroke Catholic nation that we were now going to we had regained from communism and we were going to embody in the in the new republic. And essentially, those parties created elements of a narrative that peace then, that law and justice then picked up and articulated much more effectively. Law and justice's um, initial argument was that um, the political institutions of the Third Republic in Poland are fundamentally flawed. They, um, they make it impossible for certain kinds of policy decisions to be made, and they make it impossible for certain forces on the Polish political scene to uh, to have equal access to power. And so they brought together that element, that focus on the political nature of the uh, of transition with the critique on the one hand of the economic problems of transition that came from self-defense and the critique of the cultural consequences of transition that came from the, um, the League of Polish Families. The populist narrative consisted in an amalgamation of those three elements and was carried out much more effectively by law and justice than it was by by the other two populist parties. The experience of living through the first decade of transition created a situation in which um, what had at the beginning of the decade seemed like the politics of normality, so transition to free markets, um, cultural cosmopolitanism, openness, um, integration with um, uh, with international political institutions and so on and so forth. This began to seem, to some people at least, to some social groups and to some political parties, more pathological than it had seemed at the beginning. So that, that this was that this was not the politics of normality after all. And that is really where um, you started to see uh, the structure of the party system changing. And this post-communist, post-solidarity divide giving way to a very um, a very different distinction between those who accepted the essential logic of transition and those who rejected it for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You spoke just now about the shift in the way that voters evaluate the parties um, that are competing for their support. Why, how and why do ordinary polls um, support law and justice? Well, law and justice has always been um, quite a broad church as far as its political appeal and its electoral base is concerned. It has tended to gain support from a disproportionate extent from those who are who are in rural areas, people with lower levels of education. It's tended to be more popular among older voters as well. But these broad socio sociodemographic differences, while they sort of show a certain tendency towards the kinds of um, uh, the base of law and justice's support. Underneath all this is a much greater degree of heterogeneity. Um, so law and justice has it's tended to appeal to different constituencies for different reasons. Hmm. There are, it has had a support, for example, from those who in, the, um, in 2001, um, and before that might have been inclined to support the um, the left um, for economic reasons, not because they shared any sense of the left's um, socio-cultural um, policies, quite uh, quite the opposite in many respects, but because the left seemed like the more the most um, the party most likely to be able to articulate more socially sensitive policies at a level where they could actually translate that into um, in, 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 into policy. Others have supported law and justice because they see it as um, 
a way to restore a certain sense of Polish um, national identity and and to restore Polish cultural values to as, as they see them, so traditional values to their uh, correct place of prominence. And so those that constituency is not particularly interested in economic issues. Um, it's interested rather in um, sort of restoring a certain sense of um, uh, Polish uh, historical and values-based prestige um, instead of this very postmodern um, liberal um, notion of, uh, of, of what Poland is. So I think that part of its strength has been the fact that it can draw on quite different constituencies that are, motiv- that are motivated by different things. And as it's established itself as a main, as one of the main parties of Polish politics, it's also been able to um, to entrench a sort of uh, a tribal appeal that um, uh, that is akin in many respects to the sort of uh, what, what seemed to be emerging in the 1990s. If in the 1990s the two tribes were post-communist and post-solidarity, since then the um, the divide has shifted and the divide has now become sort of pretty much about whether you are in favor of law and justice or whether you are um, in, in favor of civic platform. And this has articulated the main divide. And I think that in law and justice's case, they've, they've also benefited from um, a, a perceived level of, um, of competence in policy delivery as well, in the sense that um, they got elected saying that they were going to do certain things and they've managed to do them. You know, people told them you can't introduce, for example, a, um, a significant um, child benefit policy that's been extremely popular since it was introduced in 2016, that you, the money simply isn't there. You can't do it. It's impossible. And they went ahead and did it. People told them you can't lower the retirement age. That's It's simply it's not something that it, this, that comes within the bounds of what is politically possible. And they mm-hmm. went ahead and did it. And I think that a lot of... Um, a lot of Polish voters have appreciated the fact that after years of being told that there were only certain things that political parties could do and a very narrow um, ambit of what is politically possible, that here has come a political party that says we can do something different. And they've actually they've got elected and, and delivered on that. When it comes to the question of um, the differences between parties on the populist and the non-populist side of the divide in terms of um, in terms of policy i think that what one of the things that law and justice has done is to sort of to shift the center ground in polish politics to an extent that it's very difficult now for um for many political parties to articulate strongly and consistently policy alternatives to uh, what law and justice has been doing over the last few years if we take for example the 500 plus child benefit policy where um Families are paid um, 500 zloty per month for um, now for for every child um, up until the age of 18. This was extremely controversial at the beginning of Peace's term in in power because it was seen as something that was going to blow up the budget. It was seen as a policy that Poland simply couldn't afford. You mm. won't find any political party now that has any intention of getting elected in Poland who will say, um, when we get elected, we're going to um, uh, to overturn this policy. It's become part of the, um, uh, the policy landscape. And um, as a policy has contributed generally to a shifting towards 
greater acceptance for um, for the state and for the role of the state in intervening in in the economy um, than was previously the case. I think in that sense, um, the difference between the parties um, has been narrowed by the fact that so much of what law and justice have been doing over the last few years has been politically popular, electorally popular and 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 effective in the sense that it has um, it has been able to point to a number of significant policy achievements. And that has led opposition parties to think, well, on the one hand, we need to present an alternative. But on the other hand, peace has captured the centre ground. It's mm-hmm. becoming cre- increasingly difficult to imagine an alternative um, set of policies that could provide um, a basis on which an opposition party could oppose law and justice and do so effectively. I think certainly the uh, the child benefit policy in particular is um, is is very popular. Mm-hmm. That has been a policy that um, uh, it's popular not only for what it's done in terms of you know, the fact that people generally will not object to um, to being given money in preference to the alternative, but it's also been popular because it has allowed a certain stratum of the population that was previously um, at very high risk of social exclusion to feel more included in Polish society. So I think that in that sense, that policy in particular has, the phrase that's used in Poland is that it's restored prestige. It is a redistributive policy, not only in terms of redistributing money, but also redistributing a certain sense of social prestige. You just talked about the ways in which law and justice has changed the uh, economic and social policy regime in Poland. And previously, you mentioned the ways in which the party has transformed the party system by introducing the new cleavage in um, the Polish post-transition politics. I wonder how you see the impact that the party has had on Polish democracy more broadly. I would say it's twofold. On the one hand, we have um, liberal democracy as a set of institutions. And in that sense, the impact has been almost exclusively negative. It's... um, Law and justice has always pushed against the idea that it should be constrained in in what it does. Mm. It's always seen institutions that have the capacity to constrain it as um, uh, not only a problem, but as um, something fundamentally illegitimate. I think we saw that in its first term in power, where it was repeatedly pushed back by the Constitutional Tribunal. The Constitutional Tribunal essentially um, was able to prevent law and justice from um, introducing uh, policies such as a more extensive um, uh, and more all-embracing lustration policy, for example, which it attempted to introduce then. And um, the lesson that law and justice took from that was that unless we capture these institutions, unless we are at least are able to paralyze the functioning of these institutions, we're not going to get the things done that we we want to do because the system won't permit it. And their actions since 2015 have been very consistent in that respect. Um, first of all, in ensuring that they can um, assume control of the constitutional tribunal, which has essentially been turned into a sort of uh, a political rubber stamp or an, an alternative channel for, for making 
uh, policy changes that they can't get through, uh, they can't get through Parliament. It, it would be fair to say that um, parliamentarism has never been, um, uh, uh, even previously, at a particularly uh, high level of, of quality. But rather than reforming Parliament, they've simply compounded the existing flaws and had a very negative impact on um, the ability of the opposition to to participate to any meaningful extent in debate and deliberation. On the other side of things is the representative side of democracy. And I think that here, one of the things that law and justice has achieved is to increase the sense on the part of many who had switched off from politics, who would feel, who had felt fundamentally unrepresented by existing political parties, that that people like them are being listened to and people like them are being, uh, their values and their preferences and interests are being reflected in policymaking and in political discourse more generally. I think that... Um, one of the striking things was the turnout in Polish elections has been among, was for a number of years among the lowest in the region. In the last elections, mm-hmm. it was um, somewhere in the order of just over 60%. And I think that we can attribute that to a certain extent to the fact that law and justice has succeeded in repoliticizing a number of areas of political dispute in ways that are conducive to um, factors such as increasing turnout, increasing the sense that there is something politically at stake in an election, rather than simply an, an, a, a sort of a changing of uh, a changing of the guard that doesn't change much in policy terms. Mm-hmm. And so, I think in that sense, when it comes to the representative side of, of democracy, one of the things that law and justice has been able to point to and has taken pains to point to is. There were a lot of people before we came along who um, who didn't feel represented, who didn't feel like anyone was actually articulating their views and standing up for them. We have been able to do that. And um, these people vote for us, say they're going to vote for us at the next elections, um, identify with us and see law and justice as a party which is going to... Um, to continue to represent them in the future, whether in uh, in power or in opposition. You have talked about uh, law and justice endangering the formal um, institutions of liberal democracy and informal norms, including individual rights and freedoms and separation of powers, um, while at the same time facilitating greater political inclusion by previously marginalized voters, especially in, in, in more rural and smaller communities. Um, And that's your assessment. What's your observation about how polls on the ground feel about the impact that law and justice has had on the political regime in their country? I think that um, the image that we tend to see is, um, and this has been the case since 2015, is that um, a lot of people will um, come out to protest against various things that uh, law and justice has been trying to do. So the, the image that we tend to, uh, to get, uh, certainly that gets broadcast internationally, is of the, the Poles who have a history of contesting their political regimes, uh, rising up again to protest against um, a political party which is, uh, which is having a, a negative effect on, um, on the level of democracy. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, what we don't see is uh, on the one hand significant acceptance of what law and justice is doing and on the other hand certain indifference to what law and justice has been doing to these institutions you tend to see that um 
when you ask people in um, in surveys about their attachment to uh, liberal democratic values, to um, whether the constitutional court should be able to control um, uh, legislation, whether the um, the opposition should have a um, a genuine role in holding the government to account. Everyone will say that these are all great things and these are things that uh, all dem uh, liberal democracies should have. Um, that's in theory. In practice, it's increasingly difficult to um, to get people to come out and protest um, to, to, to protect those institutions um, in real life. So I think that there is, on the one hand, um, the hardcore of law and justice, um, see what peace has been doing as um as good and as necessary because it's their party that's doing it and because they don't particularly um have any regard for for these institutions anyway but i think that the greater reason why law and justice has been able to carry on doing um doing what it's doing to poland's political institutions it's because of this greater degree of um, of indifference that we tend to find um, among both law and justice supporters, but also um, among supporters of other uh, other parties as well. Those who are willing to contest these changes are very visible and and often very organised, but they aren't really able to incorporate. Um, a greater degree of, of social resistance in, in many respects. Those who come out and protest are, are the sort of, are, are the population of those who, who are willing to protest rather than a sample of that population. At least that's how it seems at times. You see the people's response to um, the changes implemented by law and justice as a function of their indifference to those changes or rather the general weak um, affinity to liberal democratic values rather than the people aspiring for a different, perhaps more majoritarian, less pluralistic model of democracy than law and justice is promoting. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Um, what law and justice has been doing since 2015 is not something that anybody ever voted for. It wasn't something that they put in their manifesto in 2015. Um, they, they didn't say when we get elected, we are going to carry out an assault on these institutions. It's something that, that has happened as a result of law and justice being able to gain power. It wasn't something that, that anybody really voted for in the sense of there being this big upsurge of, of anti-elite and anti-establishment pressure before the 2015 election. But what law and justice have realised, and I think they've realised this in um, uh, sort of as they've gone along, is that there is not a greater appetite for these things than people expected, but rather a greater degree of indifference than people might have expected in 2015. In the same way that they have sort of tested the waters with what the European Union has been willing to accept, I think they've also tested the waters with what their, uh, the Polish electorate is willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And as they've seen that this indifference, or at least this unwillingness to, to push back um, is, has been present in, in some cases, they've then drawn the conclusion that, um, you know, that they can go on to, um, uh, to confront other institutions. So I think that that's one of the reasons. Um, the other reason that um, I think that they've, they've had success in, um, in carrying out this assault on, on liberal democratic institutions is also because there is a certain sense among um, 
many opposition supporters and you know, sort of among the broader Polish population more generally, that there isn't very much that can actually be done to stop what is happening. I think that at a certain point, those who might have been minded to protest or to speak out against what is going on have realised that, um, that, that this is going to happen regardless, that uh, law and justice have set on a path of, um, of undermining um, key um, political and state institutions and that this isn't something that is going to... Um, uh, that, that, that they're going to be able to stop. So I think that there has been certainly in, in recent, the last couple of years, a degree of exhaustion and acceptance of um, the, the fact of democratic, of democratic backsliding to the extent that it's, it's more difficult now for opposition forces to, to galvanise opposition to law and justice by focusing on the, de- on the issue of democratic institutions. Instead, they have to try to come up with... Um, uh, with, with policy alternatives in other domains. I wonder where is the strongest pushback um, against law and justice at the moment? And who are the actors who are organizing that pushback? The strongest pushback against law and justice at the moment, I think, is um, probably within its own ranks. I mean, this is a, mm. um, one of the things that we don't know about the party is whether, for example, it will ever be able to survive a change of leader in the way that other parties have, have more or less been able to. It's mm-hmm. very much associated with um, uh, with Jaroslav Kaczynski as the leader, um, and his his word is writ. His uh, his ideas are the ideas of our party, and um, no factionalism, um, at least you. Know, uh, factionalism that is uh, of a significant uh, to a significant extent is tolerated. So I think that that uncertainty is one of the things that keeps the party together um, hmm. uh, for for, uh, for the time being. I think that one of the things that also needs to be taken into consideration is that the Law and Justice Parliamentary Club, which provides the government with its majority, um, is not solely composed of Law and Justice deputies. There is also um, Previously, a, a smaller, um, more moderate party, the Agreement Party, was part of this coalition. That subsequently um, left during the course of 2000, uh, 2021. And there is a, a party, uh, United Poland, which remains part of the coalition for the time being, but has clearly shown signs of trying to distinguish itself um, and trying to carve out a a clearer position for itself as a party on the right of, um, of law and justice. And so that there is a sense that there are a number of um, uh, increasingly dissatisfied um, proto-factions within the party that could mm. potentially um, pose a threat to its ability to, uh, to persist in the longer term. Sections of law and justice which have started to look uh, somewhat more critically at some of the things that the party has been doing. Mm. Um, certainly, at present, with the the COVID response um, uh, and with um, increasingly high levels of inflation in Poland, and I think that that is going to be something that um, is going to pose the greatest threat to the party in, 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 in over the next eighteen months or so. It has a very fragile majority at present, which is. Um, it could, could vanish mm-hmm. with just a couple of defections. It actually lost its majority for a, a short period a few months ago. 
And since then, there has been this sense that it is it is improvising to, to, to hang on to power to a greater extent than, uh, than was previously the case. It certainly lost its image of being a kind of um, all-conquering, monolithic political power, which is disciplined and which can push anything through Parliament if it puts its mind to it. And how do you see uh, law and justice's vulnerability to the so-called culture wars? Um, for example, the crisis at the border, the fight with the EU over rule of law. How vulnerable is law and justice to that? And how much, how uh, politically resonant are those attacks with the general population in Poland? I think that there are some... Um... Some fights that it picks that it can win and others that are more risky. If that problem was going to exist, it was going to be exploited by law and justice to, um, to, sort of, uh, to whip up uh, a degree of fear about, uh, about um, non-EU migration, in particular fear of um, migration of people who come from, from countries which, uh, whose cultural background is very different to that of Poland which um, is something that they've been doing since um, since the refugee crisis of, uh, of 2015 anyway. So in that sense, it was a that created a possibility for them to return to that narrative. And I think that they are that is um, at least for the time being, a narrative that is not going to negatively affect them. Uh, the, you can see the opposition parties having played this issue very carefully, having criticized law and justice for, for the in, inhumanitarian nature of some of it uh, of its response, while at the same time scrupulously um, emphasizing the fact that Belarus is to blame for the crisis and not Poland, not being seen to be too critical of law and justice in, in terms of its overall handling of the of the crisis. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the issues such as Poland's relationship with the European Union and the uh, the LGBT issue in particular, two issues which I think have been perhaps the most prominent over the over the last couple of years, um, aside from the, uh, the the refugee issue, there I think law and justice is more vulnerable. On mm. the one hand, it, it can exploit with the LGBT issue. It can exploit a certain um, a strong homophobia in some quarters and a sort of queasy, uneasy conservatism in others, um, but with diminishing returns. I think with the the difference here being that uh, very few Poles have direct experience of close relationship or friendships with people of a refugee background. On the other hand, a lot of people who might themselves be um, sort of accessible for anti-LGBT LGBT narratives at a certain point, the issue becomes personal for them. They have uh, people they work with or people in their families who are LGBT, and they end up, it, it ends up becomes, becoming something that they uh, that is more personally relevant to them. Mm-hmm. So peace reaches a point where what seems to be a popular um, support-winning um, anti-LGBT narrative starts to look like a kind of obsessive bullying and I think that that's when they have to pull back from it. If the opposition were to be somewhat more um, unambiguous in the support that it gives to uh, to Poland's LGBT community, I think that this is an issue that could potentially be um, be much less effective for law and justice. But at the moment, um, certain opposition parties don't have the uh, the appetite or don't have the um, the inclination to swing behind the LGBT community and support them. 
mm -hmm. it comes to the EU, mm -hmm. here again, there is a vulnerability um, in the sense that nothing that they have done over the last few years has in any respect diminished even by a percentage point, the proportion of Poles who have a, a pro-EU orientation. This goes not only for, for, um, for Poland's EU membership, but also for things like uh, attitudes towards uh, further integration and general attitudes towards the EU institutions themselves. Mm. I think until now, until now, they've tended to benefit from being able to take on the establishment in the EU and be seen to be standing up for Poland because nobody because nobody really thinks that uh, has thought un until this point that that could actually lead to Poland having having to leave the European Union or being forced out of the European Union that i think is changing to an extent particularly after the um the constitutional tribunal ruling about um the superiority of uh, of, of the constitution over over eu law i think that was a point where both the opposition and um, at least a significant section of the, uh, the Polish population started to think, well, this might be a step too far and certainly pushing things further than this is going to be risky. The more real the prospect of poll exit becomes, the more it is going to hurt them because there's no sign that as a result of what peace has been doing has become more, more Eurosceptic or even more likely to embrace the idea of, of the EU that, uh, that law and justice would prefer to see uh, put into practice. Professor Stanley, thank you for joining me today. It's been really a fascinating conversation about the evolution of the Law and Justice Party, its appeal among the electorate and its impact on the society, economy and polity in Poland. We look forward to your future work on this topic, including um, the book that you're working with, Stanley Bill, on Poland's revolt against the liberal order. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope you will tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website, europe.columbia.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe. Thank you. <laughs>